Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. If you are a theater fan, then you must have been lucky enough to see the brilliance of today's guest more than a few times. Since the (laughs) mid-1970s, she has lit up New York stages with her incredible comic timing and the uncanny ability to break your heart. Here is just a small list of her oh-so-impressive resume. Uh, Uncommon Women and Others, Once in a Lifetime, Roadshow, Censored Scenes from King Kong, which I'm very excited to talk about. That's the first person we've had from that. Is There Life After High School, Great Score, Quilters, The Heidi Chronicles, Beauty and the Beast, Cabaret, On Your Feet, Wicked. We did, uh, you were in a little night music for like a week that we shared, but and in performances that people still burst in tears over. Ida, the loyal wife, who won't leave her husband in Titanic. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Jane Meadows, Jason Robards, Norman Lear, Wendy Wasserstein, Danny Aiello, Gloria Stefan, Stephen Sondheim, Meryl Streep, Glenn Close, Woozy Kurtz, and so many others, here is the Obie Award-winning Alma Cuervo. Alma, how are you today? I'm great. I'm locked up here in my apartment like everybody else, but um, but great, great. Glad to be alive and just hoping that the theater returns soon. <laughs> oh, the, we, we are all hoping this the same hope. So now speaking yeah. of theater, when did you first fall in love with the performing arts? Oh, wow. It's, uh, I think, I think I probably knew when I, when I was about 12 mm. and it's very strange. This is weird. Uh, anyway, I used to watch, there was a, a series on television that Judy Garland had um, for about 26 weeks on CBS, which I had to, kill my brother to be able to watch because I think it was opposite Bonanza. Anyway, um, (laughs) so, uh, and it was spectacular. And there was something about, I had seen theater uh, mostly locally and tours and stuff like that, but but there was something so magical about her singing that actually 
made me think I want to do this. And I was singing a little bit then, but my, you know, even women's voices changed too. And it was just, I was just starting to learn if I had a, a, a singing voice. And so, but I knew that I wanted to do theater. And uh, anyway, that's, that was what it began for me. I had done a few little, I didn't really do anything professional mm. till much, much later. And were your folks supportive of you being into the performance? <sighs> They, they were because they were just plain supportive people, but they were scared about it. And uh, I was kind of a brain and they wanted me to become a lawyer uh, or something like that. And, what did they um, do for a living? That my father owned a printing company that became rather big in Florida. But it, mm -hmm. when I grew up, it was just a printing company. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother was a housewife. She had been a, a legal secretary just before they married. But she was she was a uh, very much a mom, a stay-at-home mom. And they were both very bright, and they loved theater. I mean, they took me to see things all the time. There were also these things. I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and there were these things that they would do because uh, it was a a community made up of Spanish, Cuban, and Mexican people plus uh, Floridian Anglo people. Mm -hmm. And but they they all all had um, they had these shows called zarzuelas, which are like Spanish musical comedies that they used to take me to from the time I was five. And they would be in these auditoriums. They were locally done, but quite elaborate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, they were hot because there was no air conditioning. All the women would bring, would wear perfume and, and fans. It was a different era. Yeah. And um, and it that was very inspiring. I remember going from the time I was about five till, well, forever, all the time I lived at home. And uh, and that was Spanish musical musical theater. Because it was in Spanish. It was in Spanish, yeah. Was that the plus. Is that your first um, language? It was my first language, but only because they figured I'd learn English anyway. My parents spoke English. They were born here. Right. But my great-grandmother, who was in the house, didn't speak English. And she had me a lot. So they taught me Spanish yeah. first. But then once I learned English, I didn't speak Spanish. And I heard it all the time. So I was... And I was fluent in it. I just got shy about it because mm. it was a very critical community mm. where if you got oh. anything wrong, they would make fun of you. Mm. And I wasn't, I, I wasn't good at, with that. Um, mm. So they always blame me for the fact my brother didn't speak it because he was younger than me and, and went right to English. Right. But, um, but I studied it in school too. And I, but, and, the, and like I say, the city was very tri, uh, Spanish, Spanish and Cuban. You almost couldn't make the difference. Uh, mm. the, uh, like I don't, I, I eat foods now that I don't know if they're Spanish or Cuban because it was such a mix. Yeah. And then there was a lot of Italian. There was mafia. There was, it was, yeah. <laughs> was, right. But but then you, but it's amazing that you you had opportunities to see theatricality, to see things yeah. that were of that theatrical. Yeah. Nature. Even when I when I was little, I didn't really. I wanted to come see shows in New York, but I never really came till I was about thirteen. I think the first time. And oh, then yeah? we started coming just about. Almost every summer, we would come and see a lot of shows in one week, in like five days. We what was the first Broadway show you ever saw? Well, on the same day, I saw Golden Boy. Yeah. I saw that in the after mm -hmm. I saw that and Florida Red Menace the same day. Those were my first shows. Wow. And, um, okay. And then others that same trip, but that was that was the beginning. Oh my goodness! Yeah. And th and those weren't incidental. My father loved Sammy Davis Jr. and mm -hmm. I wanted to see Liza Minnelli. Yeah. So they were planned. They were ah, <laughs> totally. That's awesome. Love that. Now, where did you go to undergrad? Undergrad, I went to Tulane in New Orleans. Actually, mm -hmm. I went to Sophie Newcomb College of Tulane, mm -hmm. which was the women's college, but they were all together. Um, I went to Tulane, and that was like sort of a compromise because I, like I said, I grew up in Florida. 
and I, I really wanted to go just because I had a teacher that had gone there. I wanted to go to Vassar and I had a scholarship there. My parents said, no way, it's too far away. And there were all these uh, demonstrations against the war. So they sent me to Tulane where they were burning down the campus. <laughs> but they didn't know. <laughs> so, I was say, Tulane was pretty um, revolutionary at the right. time, right? Yeah. My grandmother came to visit once and she was staying near me on the campus and and she called it, she goes, oh, you know what? They're burning the building across the way. It's R-O-T-C, they're building. <laughs> I'm coming. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we did, like our first year uh, of wow. school, we never even had our final exams. You had you could take the final grade or stick around or something. And um, Because there, it got intense. It was really in the anti-war um. era. And, yeah, it was very political. It was... Um, which you wouldn't really necessarily think it was. Some people thought of it as a party school, but that was more mm. Loyola next door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you study at Tulane? I studied theater. I did, um, which had had a really wonderful department until I got there, and then it was, then it was okay. But if they had like if they had a, they had the, the the Tulane Drama Review, which became later TDR at NYU, because um, all the professors did a walkout and they came up here because they were funding football and not the theater right. department yeah. and other stuff. So, um, so it was, but there were still enough remnants of that. And, um, and there were some amazing teachers, especially literary uh, in terms of dramatic literature. Mm. Uh, like there's this one teacher who later became the head of the department, uh, Millie Barringer, and she was amazing. I mean, it was like everybody, even that wasn't in the theater, wanted to get into her class because she was mm. so articulate and a little scary because she knew so much. And, uh, and later she headed up a theater department at Chapel Hill. Uh, they, they had a, 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 an actual repertory theater there. And um, there, were, there were a lot of really wonderful, wonderful people. And um, so it was a good compromise, as it turned out. I, I, yeah, I, it, was a, it was a wonderful time. And, um, and I still have a lot of friends, who, all of whom have now moved. They were here, and they moved back to New Orleans. <laughs> so then, when you when you got finished at undergrad, did you go immediately to graduate school? Yeah, I went right away. Um, I auditioned in New Orleans because they they would come to different cities in the country, and uh, yeah, I knew I wanted to go to Yale very badly, but oh. the odds were very you know what they are. They're just ridiculous. Oh, so back you. then, the classes would be made up of eleven people, including the directors, and it was usually three women and the rest men so that within a class you could do a Shakespeare play. And, um, and everybody would have a decent part. Um, so it was, it was just a crapshoot. And I, but I, uh, I, I lucked out. And, um, and at that point when my parents were a little dodgy, I said, look, this time it's not a discussion. <laughs> I'm yeah, going. yeah. So no, we can do it happy. We can do it sad. But I'm <laughs> <laughs> and I remember my father would tell his friends in Florida that I was going to Yale, and they thought I meant jail. <laughs> there were a lot of Latins. <laughs> I voted. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. It's a good thing. <laughs> do you do you remember but, uh, what pieces you did for your audition? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I did a Scottish play, yep. which, which was sort of a. Um, I had put, I put a scene together. So it had, you know, I had, you had to kind of put things together. You had enough Lady M in there. And I did um, The House of Blue Leaves, which mm. I told John Guar about like, many years later. And he was kind of, oh, how cool. <laughs> <'Cause he's laughs> um, and those are the, those are the two straight. Yeah. I think I, I think they asked if I sang, but I don't remember what or if I sang. Yeah. Cause that was like, 
they were not as concerned with that uh, sure. because it isn't really a musical theater program per se. So we have heard so much about the the Yale drama program, and but I mean, you were at like the golden age of the the Yale drama program. It was a really good time. Yeah. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about your training there um, and who some of your fellow classmates were? Well. Um, the, the, the tricky thing about the classes is that there were so few people that you had classes with the year below you and the year above a lot. But um, in my class, there are very few people that continue to act. There's Christine Estabrook, who um, has def- definitely done a lot of stuff, uh, and, a, and a, an actor that's worked more on the, on the West Coast, Joel Polis. And um, a guy who's become a big philanthropist in the theater, his name's Jeremy Smith. He, he, he supports a lot of theater, but he, he is still an actor, but he hasn't worked since a long time ago now. He does more about giving money to theaters. And then the year above, of course, had Meryl Streep and uh, Francine uh, Frandorn. And uh, there were a lot of amazing playwrights there at the same time too, uh, like, well, Wendy Wasserstein and Ted Talley and, uh, 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 Chris Durang, Albert Inorado. Mm-hmm. There were amazing designers, William Ivy Long and a million others. It was a really hot time. And uh, and also there were people that were getting their PhDs so that like Michael Feingold was becoming a critic and others like, like that. And the teachers were pretty wonderful. Uh, like Carmen de Lavalade was a gift from God. Um, she was not just as a movement teacher, but also just as a human being. And um, Alvin Epstein taught a bit. A guy named Tom Haas was there for a while, but he wasn't there all the way through. Uh, Moni Akeem taught uh, mine, which he also taught at Juilliard. He goes, he I think has a, a film out now. He was, mm-hmm. he would tell you to freeze and it added to the extreme pain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was kind of terrific. And then a lot of times the actors who were doing a show at the Rep would also teach, like an actor named Thomas Hill would teach. Mm-hmm. Different people would come in and, and do like a sort of master classy sort of things, or they would assist, like if Alvin Epstein was also directing at the time and couldn't do all his classes, mm-hmm. these guys would take over. It was it was good, it was small, it was intense. And the very first day they'd ask you things like, oh, so are you an actor? And you never even said that before out loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm an actor. And it was kind of, I remember when I finally got to New York and I went to uh, open a bank account and they said, what are you? Uh, oh, I see you're trying to act. And I said to them, no, I am an actor. I'm trying to stay employed. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. But um, it was, and it was people that were intending to do it for life. Classes were not about, you sh- also, you didn't really get graded. So if you didn't show up, that was kind of yeah. the point. So if you didn't show up, you were out. And um yeah. It was it was scary and wonderful, and we all got to Sounds work intense. at the desk. It was very intense, and we were totally. working all day long. We would start at classes like eight in the morning, go all yeah. day, rehearse at night, and then we'd rehearse cabaret shows until one or two in the. I remember we rehearsed a production of the Three Sisters starting at eleven p.m. because the days <laughs> oh were just so full that you couldn't. When else are you going to do it? It was great. It was a very. And then I stayed an extra year because um, I was asked to join the resident company, and um, so I did it for one year, and then I sort of had the discussion where I said, I gotta go, I gotta, gotta see if I can do this outside. Yeah. Did you get your union card while in? in- yeah, our, our third year, we did so much work at the Rep. They saved mm-hmm. a lot of money using yeah. you know, free labor. Um, that at the end, that was one of the things they gave us, they gave us our equity card. And um, that was amazing, because we came to New York then, Good able to, to work. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and we definitely had put in the hours. That there was no question. I mean, oh yeah, it's a true apprenticeship. I mean, really. Yeah, because yeah, we had also done work at the Rep our first two years, but um, including like the <laughs> that was extracurricular when we did the frog set in the swimming pool. But um, were you a part of that? Yeah, yeah, it was a singing frog as opposed to a swimming frog or a dancing frog. <laughs> <laughs> was that good or bad? I mean, we were. It was great. It was great. I mean, you know, Sondheim show and you're what, 21 years old, just watching and, um, and he didn't, it was very strange because we were rehearsing in, um, it's, it's like one of the largest pools in the world that's indoors. And the echo was so, um, in fact, that's why there's a lyric in the play about that. We don't know if you can hear us because there's such an echo. That's not the lyric. Um, but there was such an echo that we didn't know if it would be heard. And, um, Bert Shevlov would direct from a dinghy in the middle of the pool with a with a megaphone. What? Yes, yes. And um, and the and the swimming frogs were were boys on the on the Yale swim team, and their butts were exposed, which was a big scandal because they had these you know frog costumes that anyway. Um, yeah. And and Sondheim didn't write the main song. They, it's called the Parabasis, which is the main argument of the play. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the eleven o'clock number, but it's the whole argument that happens before that. And he didn't write it for like the first few days, even that we were open. So when we finally got that, the whole thing sort of fell together. But by then we had opened. Um, and all these people, big celebrities and stuff, came in busloads from New York to see this. It, it was all apparently a favor to Shevelov from Sondheim. And he had some songs that were from Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum that uh-huh. had been retooled. Uh-huh. Uh, but they were mostly, they were mostly new. And um, that, but that was done like in June of my after my first year. So you had to audition separately for that if you wanted to stay on to do right. it. Who wouldn't? And um, right. and a lot of everybody was in it. Sigourney Weaver was in it. Uh, uh, Chris Durang sang in it. He's a good voice, as uh-huh. you probably know from putting putting it yeah. together. And Meryl was in it. And all, all, everybody everybody auditioned and wanted to be in it. It was fun. It was hot. It was slippery. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Directing from a dinghy. That sounds like an incredible rehearsal process. Move to the right. (laughs) When you when you moved up to the city, what would you consider to be the first show that was was a big thing for you and for your career that you that you landed? Uh, It would be Uncommon Women and Others because I had gone. Well, Wendy had been in in my year as a playwright, and I had years before, like about four years before, I had done a when she'd only written an act of it, I had played another role and we were good friends. I had done a lot of stupid things that she would write, like for the, for the Jewish why and stuff. Yeah. Would just, and then do, we were friends. We were, and, yeah. So you would and, do. And uh, we, yeah, I did everything, everything she wrote, we would do. And, uh, and we had a lot, we were very simpatico. So um, I auditioned for it here and, uh, and we did it at the Phoenix and then we did it for PBS, a, a slightly changed version where, and that's where Meryl replaced Glenn Close we thought Glenn was insane, but he had the opportunity to do Crucifer of Blood in Buffalo and took that. Oh. And, and no, nobody, there was no idea that it would come to Broadway or any of that. That was, right. and so we thought she was insane. And, uh-huh. um, but she didn't think it was as good a part. Uh, anyway, whatever. Uh, they were both amazing. And so. Yeah. Would you that. tell us a little bit about what it was like working with Wendy Wasserstein and who, who the person was for those of us who did not get to know her? She was really funny, really smart, 
and like like you'd be rehearsing something and she and there'd be she could tell that there was something wrong with the section and she would write like six alternatives she wrote like a little girl is this really squeaky and she'd like hand you a piece of loose leaf and say try this try this <laughs> and she'd be sitting out front in a, in a laura ashley dress with she loved actors she consumed with us and she, she we would go out afterwards all the, everybody all the time to coffee shops or whatever and discuss everything and we were all of an age and we had a lot of us been to the same kind of undergrad school and it, it was like women's colleges because even though it was, I was at Tulane but I was at Sophie right. Nuka, which is like <laughs> and I'm flattering myself it's like Radcliffe was to uh to Harvard that was the example it wasn't that but it was but yes yeah. they thought they were <laughs> and um so the, all this thing about the way the dorms worked and, and checking out and signing out to other people all of the camaraderie that you had in that kind of an institution we all understood and she was amazing. I did I did a lot of her show. I did the first two shows that she had here, Uncommon Women and Others, and then Isn't It Romantic in its first incarnation. Later, it was redone by Jerry Gutierrez, and I replaced in it, but because uh, I was doing the Storm and Lear thing uh, in L.A. But the, not that he wanted me. I wasn't here. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I did it later, and I did it in Chicago. But uh, And then I... Um, Heidi and some other shows of hers and smaller things. And, and I remember when she was getting ill, when she had the Bell's Palsy, uh, there was a benefit at the boathouse and we sang some something she'd written ridiculous lyrics to, I think to Sunrise Sunset or something. And the two of us just sang it together. It was, we were just buddies. We were good friends. And, um, and I saw her, I was blessed to see her right before she died and she was just a really uh, important person in my life. Um, I, I really loved her a lot. For someone who maybe never has read one of her plays, how would you describe what she puts out into the world and and, and, and what maybe about Uncommon and with, uh, Women and Others is still timely today, almost 40 well, years later? That's the tricky thing. They tried doing a revival of Uncommon Women and Others and it didn't work. It felt like people trying to do a period piece, whereas when we had done it, it was our it was real people, real time. It I don't know how much of it does translate unless you get into the mindset of like for example, there, there was that show just recently, uh, Mrs. America, and it that was sort of the time of the show with uh with the women's movement with Ms. magazine being so prevalent and uh uh important and also, remember, when we went to, to college, abortion was illegal. I mean, I remember people at Tulane that literally went into the bayous to get an abortion they, uh, at, at weird little places because it was not legal. It was not accepted. Um, and the whole women's, the idea of women living as freely as men did just haven't really gelled yet, mm. if it even has now. But then it was really new. And... Um, I think that they also they tried to do a revival of Heidi on Broadway, and I don't think there were great actors in it and a great director, but I don't think it was as nearly as successful as when it was eye poppingly new. And we, yeah. we, uh, it it seems some of it seems a little like a school pageant. Some of her stuff feels very naive, mm. um, and it really isn't mm. at all. But um, it's presented that way. And because Wendy was of the generation where, where you didn't want to be too um, abrasive or uh, pushy. Mm. And so she would sneak the points in and then in a killer way sometimes. Uh, like you, the scene in, a, uh, in Heidi Chronicles where Heidi is 
is leaving and her gay friend uh, is a doctor dealing with pediatric AIDS and they, they meet together in a, in a children's ward and, and to say goodbye is like one of those amazingly brutally well-written things I've ever seen, but mm. it seems on the surface to just be simple. Yeah. And it is, it is simple in the best ways it's, mm -hmm. uh, in the way that it's hard. Yeah. Um, she, uh, I, I don't think her stuff mostly translates well yet. I think there may be a come, there may come a time when it will again. Yeah. But, but right now it, it like I say, watching watching Mrs. Ms. Mrs. America, is that what it's called? Mrs. America, yeah, uh, made me think. Okay, people don't know that this happened. They're all, I'm reading. I'm like I, I, I was talking to a girl who was my trainer, who's like young, and they don't they don't know what happened. They don't think mm. about it. Um, a lot is taken for granted, mm. and it's not. We're not talking suffragettes. We're talking just you know, forty years ago. Yeah. And uh, I think she will have a revival, like like Arthur Miller. So when you were auditioning, uh, it, it seems like in the beginning part of your, your career in New York, there was a lot of uh, straight theater. But were yeah. you auditioning for musicals as well at the same time? Or not not really. I auditioned occasionally, and I did really artsy-fartsy ones that I loved off Ooh. Broadway. But um, like a lot of Polly Penn shows that I loved. Um, but oh. I didn't... Uh, I, I, first of all, I was not a dancer. I could move okay, but I wasn't a da dancer, and it was a dance era. And then... I felt more comfortable and I was seen as a straight actor because of the first thing I had done. I remember I did audition to to replace in like Evita, but there, and that's when I learned things like that Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted that show sung in the chest and never to go with a head voice. So I started working on that sort of thing. Oh, uh, why everybody got notes too, but that's another story. Yep. Um, yep. Not supposed to sing E flat. So no. <laughs> um, but uh, but mostly I was just auditioning straight for straight shows. I, I wasn't being seen for uh, for musicals um, for a long time. Did you have an agent <laughs> when you when you graduated? Yeah, yeah, I got one pretty quickly when I came in out of out of Uncommon Women and Others. There, I had met with people. That was the one good one good thing that mm -hmm. coming from Yale, they would see you. They wouldn't necessarily sign you, but they'd see you and you'd audition in their office. And then after I did that one, there were a few people that asked me to sign, and I went with one. So you know you you have done so many shows that we have that we've always wanted to talk about with with guests and you're the first one to do it. Shall we talk about King Kong? Shall we? Oh God, Young is told there was very few of us in it. Yeah, well, I, I actually replaced Len Close in it because uh, I had auditioned for it and then she got well. She kept getting other work. She got Barnum, and uh, accidentally it got known that she was intending to open King Kong and leave. So they said, no, we don't want to do it like that. So I replaced her about two weeks before we started. And it was Carrie Fisher. There was, there was only about six people in it. And it was very English. And I had watched this series that the guys who were involved in this um, had written called Rock Follies 77 or something. It was an English girl group. And it was a, wow. a show that ran on PBS. And, um, it, and this was much more extreme than that. And some people, like Chris Sarandon, knew the producer, a guy named Michael White, mm -hmm. um, the big deal then. And um, it, it, it was crazy. And I remember that there was a bit in it that Peter Rieger did that was really funny that then got used in other musicals. But he had to do a, a soft shoe with a walker. And it was a very small space uh, theater. And he was close to the lip of the stage and he would throw from his pocket. Somebody told him you're supposed to throw sand on the floor and then you, then you 
Right. <laughs> so he threw it all over the audience. And they're all like, what the? And Debbie Reynolds came to see the show and started, oh, she was at, talking from the audience. Oh my God. She sat on somebody's lap. And, it, and then at one point she said, is this, this is the worst thing you've ever seen? Oh my God. And it was <laughs> but, a musical? Um, it- yeah, it was a musical, and uh, we played these English characters who had alter egos, and, and uh, Carrie Fisher's was uh, Ethel Merman, and mine was Marilyn Monroe, and so we would put on these other costumes, and then we would go down to a wig cap and have different English accents, and oh be who we really were, and there were songs about banana oil, stuff. It was a political play that we didn't know what the politics meant at all, but we figured we'd probably agree. It, only, it hardly ran at all. It's You're part of a special <laughs> club. You're part of a special wow. club. Oh, yeah. No, we've not ever talked about it, really. Yeah. No, there's nobody that knows. In fact, there was some. Oh, somebody was writing a book about Carrie Fisher and actually talked to me about it because she wanted to know about oh, King Kong. And I said, okay, yeah, we'll talk. But not a lot wow. to say. Oh, and she, and she had these this amazing parties at. She lived on the Upper West Side in this with this wraparound, beautiful apartment. I mean, wraparound. Uh, Patio, what do you call it? Yeah, Terrace. Alexander, yeah. And, uh, and she had like a, a bed bedroom that was made, that looked like, um, you know when, I don't know if when you were kids, but when I was kids, you could make, there was like this false lumber that you would build little houses of. Um, yeah. That's what it looked like. It looked like a big lumber thing. <laughs> and and she, I remember she had a party that, that the people from Saturday Night Live would show up afterwards, and Belushi and all the people. And they would sit and play the piano, and it was amazing. And I was like so out of my—I was just trying to learn the words. It was like I'm playing catch up. Yeah. But it was a very star, starry kind of group. But it didn't—it didn't last. And uh, oh, and Stephen Collins before he had all of his oh yes issues later on. But we didn't know about that yet. And um, but there were—I think there were only six actors. It was five or seven, maybe. Ed Love was a musical theater dancer actor. Yeah, that's. That's great. Now, I want to ask you, if I may, about a show that I know Kevin and I both love, and so many listeners love it, and is that's is their life after high school. Gorgeous score. Gorgeous, yeah, gorgeous it, score. Yeah, yeah, Craig Carnelia. I, I, I have a feeling that if that had gone off-Broadway or to a middle house, it would have run. We went through, like, three sets of designers, two directors of some of the different technical creatives also got changed. It didn't, didn't come together. We loved it so much, and and it was scary. There was one thing I remember we were, we had to dance on top of lockers as they were separating and we nearly died. They were, they weren't, they they weren't were like so coordinated scary, and they would just yeah. separate and you're there with a, with a huge instrument and suddenly there's no, they're there. Um, it was, it was beautiful, beautiful music and very, um, people trying to fix it and mm-hmm. a lot of angst. It just didn't come together. I think there were too many cooks yeah and then clive, uh, clive davis did get, did make an album of it but yeah yeah it, we had a, I remember at the opening night party like he introduced us to like barry manilow and all this stuff and it was and then it cleared out really fast so that's when we knew <laughs> that's yeah. a sign that's a sign when yeah. you were auditioning for musicals what was your go-to audition song i didn't have one i always thought you had to have something very specific to the, to yeah. the show you know so I didn't have one at all. And then also sometimes I would go back to songs that I had sung in the past and they didn't mean it the same thing to me. And so I think, oh, let's find something new. So there really wasn't. Uh, I, I do remember singing a lot of times that I would sing for the up-tempo, which isn't, well, it is up-tempo. I would often sing Everybody Says Don't, which would drive mm-hmm. the companies crazy because it's a bitch to play. But mm-hmm. um, I would sing that a lot because it had so many words. And I yeah. think that's 
there's a lot of action. And uh, for the, for the for ballads, I always changed them up because because uh, I liked I like yeah. to look for new ones, and so I tried to get some in the same range as as the show I was doing, and maybe mm-hmm. the same uh, something similar in them. Mm, just breezing along with the breeze Breezing along Hey Lucy, where's Viv this weekend? Viv's back at the studio She's helping to donate to Patreon.com And keep behind the curtain Broadway's living legends on the air That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com In front of the curtain, behind the curtain, all the curtains Oh, that's a terrific idea, honey We better pull over and donate yeah, we better pull over and donate. Open a new window. Who told you to sing? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, I'm, I, I must admit, I'm a huge television fan. And so would you talk a little bit about your experience <laughs> with, with Norman Lear on, oh, on this television no. show? Oh. A.K.A. Pablo was the first Latin American uh, comedy uh, sitcom. It, it was ahead of its time for everyone because Latins didn't like it because the, the people that were represented were definitely new immigrants that didn't have any money. So they didn't have any style and they didn't look like people in the telenovelas that, you know, with the hair and the mm-hmm. and beautiful estates. These people all lived together and they had a parrot and a dirty dog. Literally, they used to streak and tips a dog so that they would make him look dirtier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And the and Middle America just didn't know what to make of it at all. The writers were a mix of a very few Latin people. Uh, Jose Rivera was one, and uh, and a lot of Jewish writers. So it, all the uh, the humor was very self-deprecating, which Latins are not. But um, and it also had a Orschbelt timing to it. Yeah. Um, and some of it was just Paul Rodriguez's, who was the lead guy and a comedian, uh, his own family story. And we had wonderful guests. Oh, oh, Hector Elizondo played his yeah. agent who had a, a, a Jewish name so people would answer his phone calls. That was the idea, <laughs> that which was spoken. And, um, and we had guest stars like the Arthur who got into a huge fight with Cati Arado, uh, where Norman Learfan had to come on the set. What about what, may I add? Well, they just attacked each other. It was two divas, mm-hmm. but it also there was also some adult beverages involved. Of course, we've <laughs> heard. Not, not the first time we've heard that. So, and uh, that that stopped after that. But 
but I'm, but it was weird because we had things like you had to have a doctor on the set. We had a vet. You <laughs> 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 would tell us if we were okay to work. And um, uh, we only did about seven episodes. We had ama amazing directors like from the Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, we shot. Uh, oh, it was funny. They would have all these parties and they'd always be in Mexican restaurants. And Paul Rodriguez went up to, to, to Norman Lear one day and said, every time you have a party for the Jeffersons, do you go to Watts? Mm. <laughs> he just really wanted a different kind of food every once in a while. It was like, but um, it was fun. I played his, um, like, his sister, who was his mo his confidant. And I, I worked at um, Kmart. So it was Attention Kmart Choppers. And, um, and we had a big Latin American cast from all over the Americas uh, that they had taken. A, in fact, I was under contract to Norman Lear. For, they were going to find something. This is out of working at the O'Neill. I'd been signed to him, and they were just going to look for something. And then this popped up that I checked off the uh, ethnic thing, and, and it fit. It was, it was fun. But I didn't stick around to do all the publicity and fun stuff when they opened because I was doing a tour of a different of a show. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and I, I, I found it more necessary to work, to remind myself why I liked this business mm. than to be there. And I think that there was a little resentment that I was, I did some promotion, but only on the phone and stuff like that. Uh. Uh, and it didn't, it just didn't work. I think we did seven episodes. I know that in the, the next year they had already written an episode where I was going to bring home a black boyfriend and that wasn't oh. going to be okay. I mean, they were really, they were really stretching. They're looking at things like whoever got off the boat last knocks down the, mm -hmm. you know, the ones just below, and um, it it was fun. And then when I got finished with it, they uh, some people were offering me stuff in L.A. to do that kind of thing again, and mm -hmm. I I said no, that's not. Also, that's not. I didn't want to do theater just or TV just to play people that I kind of really knew that ethnically. I didn't want to yeah. trade on that. Yeah. So that's why that's why on your feet is one of the first things I've done like that in my since then. You're right, and that's like what forty years later. So. And, yeah. and what was it about on your feet that made you look at this in a different way? Okay, there's a few things. One is that I financially needed to work. That was part of it, but that wasn't. Very soon became not the thing. I loved the Estefans from the minute we did a first read. I fell mm. in love with these people. They're really good and generous people. Uh, it was that. I also, I really knew who the woman they wanted me to play was mm. because I had people like it in my family. And I wanted them to, it's 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 almost a caricature. It's almost like the Jewish mother equivalent. And it's such a caricature in Latin American households that there's this caring, but grandmother uh, who everybody loves because she's their grandmother, not their mother. And... Um, I wanted a shot at it. I thought I could do a good job. Also, when I first started doing the readings, I didn't realize she wasn't really going to sing. If I'd known that, I might have been stupid and pulled out. It would have been a stupid thing to pull out, and I might have been that stupid because I don't. I, I hate doing a musical when you're not singing. It's like yeah. painful. It's like doing that part in Carousel at Mrs. Mullins thing or something, yeah. where you you're there all night and you don't sing. Yeah, because um, that's the joy of it. Or dance if you dance. Mm -hmm. um, so those were the two big reasons. I loved them. And then I, I didn't know her music because I had been at Yale when she became big and I mm -hmm. wasn't driving really much. I was, didn't have radios on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I didn't know her music. Every, the first time we did readings, everybody knew all her songs and I was there looking at the sheet music because mm -hmm. we were all singing everything at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I really didn't know. 
I think the only song I knew of hers was Mi Tierra, a, a Spanish song she recorded about maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then when, then the opportunity to work with, with an entire Latin cast. I mean, there was one guy who wasn't because he was playing a different ethnicity in his, in his role. So it was a whole new experience because usually if there's one or two, that's it, you know, mm -hmm. in the cast. Yeah. It's, it's usually, it's like with the people my age in a show, usually it's you and, and your understudy or vice versa. There's yeah, right. lonely. <laughs> but, um, uh, so those were, those are the main reasons. And then as I got to know the show better, I started to really love the music. I would just stand by the orchestra to get psyched every night because it was mm. those trumpets. I mean, it's great band. You don't hear that many trumpets. In no. a show. Unless you're doing gypsies. Like over no. <laughs> it was, I, they would wail. And, and the drummers, I mean, we had three drummers. One was below the stage in every song mm -hmm. and then two on stage um, that are playing a million things. Right. Um, it was, and I loved the musicians because we, and then I toured with it too for a while. So I got to really know those guys well. And, um, and I saw it in London uh, after they went there. And yeah, it's, it's very much a part of my heart, that show. It was a great show. It was a fantastic it's show. It's a fun show. A, a, a joy to put on. And you know, it's interesting. You said, except for one cast member, it was an all Latin American cast. Is that yeah. correct? So yeah. we're, I mean, as we're recording this, we're such an interesting time in theater history because there is this massive push for more representation, more diversity, but there's no theater that's yeah. occurring. So do yeah. you, do you think that when we get back to quote unquote normal and we're actually able to sit in the theater again, do you think that the, the, the push for diversity will be able to follow through? I, I, I think it's so much a part of our time right now that it's, it has to. Yeah. And there's sort of a parallel situation just in terms of like, I was watching um, Joe Biden speak about how he's got a plan to um, to really revitalize small businesses, especially black and Latino owned small businesses. I think it's going to go everywhere when we come back. That we're not we are going to try to build back better, but different. Yeah. Um, but you could already see. I mean, I know that there's got to be a lot more there, but you could see in the last few years um, the number of shows that have both Latin and 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 black actors and themes um, like there's so many of them but mm -hmm. there were several shows now it used to be there was like one black show in a season and if there were two one was going to have trouble getting an audience i don't know is it going to make yeah, it yeah yeah uh mm -hmm. you know it was like one you got one and if it was denzel that would eat up anything anybody else right. got. um but um but they're coming the, the latin latin Latins don't really go to Broadway very much. So that was part of the, our big push was to get, our audiences were very seldom, there would be some Latins, but mm. it wasn't majority by any means. It was a big mix. That was one of the fun things about touring it because we got to go to places in Texas and in Florida where people really bought and got all those ethnic jokes. And then you'd play St. Louis where the guy would say the line about, this is what an American looks like and tumbleweeds, you know, and it was not received well. And so we had to fight for every moment. Mm. Um, I guess I, I do. And I hope, and I think that the, there's a, there's a lot of people that are really focused on trying to make a change when we come back. Yeah. But God, I don't know when that will be. I mean, no. until we have either testing that's immediate, that mm -hmm. everybody walking in gets tested and everybody backstage and, you know, right away, 
or a vaccine. I don't see how we can do it. I was talking to, we did a little Zoom memorial last night to Bill Sims, an agent mm. that a lot of us had, yeah. and um, who passed away this month. And uh, Alan Filderman was on, because he and, uh, they're doing a play up in Pittsfield of Godspell. And uh, the actors can't touch, it's done outside. All the audience will be apart from each other. It's the only play that's been allowed uh, to, to, to be done by the union. And uh, it's gonna be really amazingly hard. I don't know, but they're working at it and they're gonna run it for about a month, so. But I don't, I don't think we can, I don't think we can get away with that. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. even movies, I was talking to a friend who's trying to get a, a, a third series of a, a TV show third season going and it's a smaller budget and he was saying that the only he'd heard about one company who was shooting that went to Canada and they had the money to be able to take their entire cast and crew up two weeks early and they were quarantined they shot and then they were quarantined another two weeks Man. in hotels and then brought back and that's <sighs> but you have to have a lot of money yeah but that's the only way. And also, even then, it's very, yeah, that's the only, and like soap operas are being done with mannequins when they do bed scenes. Uh, right. It's, I, <laughs> wow. Like, I don't it's know. World. It's, um, it's, it's an... going to be, and I, and I was talking to some people that are, I mean, I'm older and I, you know, I'm, I'm okay, but they just don't have any way to make a living right now. I mean, right. yeah. I've recorded a few books, but that's all. Yeah. There's no work. There's no work. It's, doable yeah. in our profession we have to do mm -hmm. uber driving it's right yeah everyone is you know finding a yeah. different hat to wear um yeah but we we at some point we will all be able to we'll be gather back. again um i would love and i think kevin would love to ask you as well uh, titanic yeah which love it. Uh, i had watched at lincoln center before before all of this happened um I, it's just so good just it's so it's it that opening of all the people getting on the boat it's one of the oh most exciting God. openings but but your performance yes 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 the opening is incredible but you, your performance is so beautiful and mm -hmm. so and so finely detailed can you talk a little bit about your audition process and the rehearsal process of uh, that show we it was a lot we were it took us about a year to get cast the director mm -hmm. didn't really know american actors so he would he would see a bunch of people then go away to london then come back and go stage two, stage three, stage four. So um, hmm. we talked a lot originally. Um, the, the play was in really very rough shape at that point. The music was ready, the um, or as ready as it was to open right. and that change. Um, it it was, I was, I know I was very intimidated by uh, Mr. Stone and he was, he's just a marshmallow, but I, but he was very intimidating to me uh, to meet him and, uh, and Richard Jones is very um, acerbic and funny. And uh, I, all I remember is that there were a million auditions. And then after they got me, it was supposed to be Dick Latessa uh, as uh, Mr. Strauss. Yeah. And uh, he got a, a Sondheim show, the revival of Forum, which paid a lot more and was a big part that he wanted to do. So he left to do that. So then I auditioned with a lot of men to see, they wanted to see how we sounded together and how we looked. Mm. Um, and I was on the young side for the part at the time. In fact, mm. I'm the character's age now. Mm. So um, they just wanted to be, see if it was gonna, what, what our weight was together. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
so I auditioned with a lot of people, and then and then they they settled with Larry Keith, who was which was also in, intimidating because he just been around forever. But um, and it was it was very a very uh, the theater was you know way too small, and we had uh, our offstage choreography was more intense than the onstage. We were like oh? we were like ants running around to be able to go upstairs downstairs. Part of the reason I think why they wanted someone younger than the age of the characters that we had to run up and down steps constantly in mm. costumes that weighed 50 pounds with the hat and all that and mm. the cane on it. And you needed to be able to do it. And um, when they did the road show, they didn't, they didn't have the levels and they didn't have, it was different. Mm. Um, but um, it was complicated. And the show, we didn't have an ending when we got to the theater. We just didn't have an, couldn't, couldn't get it. And finally that, when that finally gelled and also there were so many, um, the, the, the sinking of the ship, which was like a, essentially like a garbage truck. There was, mm -hmm. it would go first, yeah. first of all, it would go on a side. So we sang still the song that the Strausses sing. I would s literally with one leg way up in the air because the, the tilt was this at the highest mm -hmm. point. So I had like one, one leg down and the other that high. Just literally I, I sang with one leg way up high with oh. the fur coat and the, uh, the fur coat and the fucking jacket. <laughs> um, so it was a lot of a lot of bulk, and um, and then there was this song that used to happen between right near the end, which is the reason the director had chosen to do it. Uh, it was a song the millionaires sang about how uh, all the horrible things they'd done because it was in the time when monopolies didn't they didn't call them monopolies. Right. You could do anything yeah. you wanted and make all yeah. like Amazon on steroids. Mm -hmm. And they had all done just dreadful things. And they all are saying they'd do it again. It's the end of an era. And each of them explained what they had done, Astor, and all, each of them, yeah. and toasted the age. And it's right before they decide to go down with the ship. And that was the reason that the, the director had wanted to do the play. And they had to cut it because it was, there were three big numbers and they needed right. it to be true. And one was supposed to be a, a, a solo for Don Stevenson, and that became a group song instead. And uh, a company song, and um, it—I—I I, I just think it's a, a magnificent piece. I think Mari Eston wrote some gorgeous yeah. music and lyrics. But also, when we were working on the book, um, there were things like that. Uh, John Cunningham, who played the captain, had to give advice to how to describe ship things about what the language was and what would happen first and what would happen second. Not just in terms of the Titanic, just what. What, what would have attention, and then also the that you had people like Ted Sperling, who's essentially a conductor, a musical director, uh, acting as well. And they, those guys in the orchestra, I mean, in the onstage band, mm -hmm. had to join the musicians' union as well because they were playing within the show. Mm -hmm. There were oh, and there was so much fun, and we were all on top of each other, and we all had dogs, and they would go running up and down the stairs and steal socks. It was. <laughs> It was it was great, and in fact, at one point I had um, uh, Vicky Clark's little boy, who was like three and a half, four years old, was sleeping with my dog underneath my dressing table. The two of them were just like this together. Um, it was a it was a joyous time, and any time anybody left the show, we'd have these big cakes, thematic oh, yeah. cakes that we would have in a big party, and. And Tony Awards, like it's great when you're yeah, still. Yeah, that was that well. was when Rosie Rosie saved us, Rosie O'Donnell, because we had gotten not good reviews, right? And then it did get the five nominations, and she started putting us on her show a lot, mm -hmm. yeah. and pushing it, and uh, and then it won the five that it was nominated for, which were the creative type awards.
afterwards. So, so we had two years and, um, I think we probably could have had more, but they were going to tour. So they wanted to go out. Sure. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your character in the oh, show? Oh, I loved her. Um, well, she, she's, uh, she was married to Isidore Strauss and they owned Macy's at the time. And um, they had they had been off in Germany, and she she wasn't completely well, which is why she uses a cane. She was when they were coming back on the Titanic. Um, she was in her sixties. Um, the the thing about her that's famous in the storytelling of the Titanic is that she's offered the opportunity to get in the boat, mm. uh, to get in a lifeboat, and her husband is offered the chance to go with her because he's older. And he says, no, I'm not getting in a boat. I'm a man. I won't get in. And so she says, well, if where, where you go, I go. And she stayed off, too, and died with him. And that's the famous part of the story. It's compared to, I think, Esther in the Bible, the, the where you go, I go thing yeah, is biblical. Yeah. So that that's her big story. I remember when we were, did the parade, the Macy's parade thing. I went, they used to be, now, there is, now it's sometimes up and sometimes down. But in one of the entrances, there were these big, like, medallions on the wall of her and her, her husband's picture. Mm. And there's a there's a a fountain on about 106th Street on the west side that's dedicated to her. And the Strasses were big, big, big philanthropists at the time. So their family endowed a lot of education things. Uh, their mm-hmm. school's named after them. And mm-hmm. they were a big deal in the, this would be 1912 when they, when they went down. But she was she was quite quite an amazing woman. They had I think four I think it was four sons. And now you've done a lot of touring. Do you enjoy? Yeah. I mean, and regional theater as well. I mean, tons of regional theater. A lot of regional, but I I like touring. I do like I like hotels. Do yeah. and I usually I've always had a dog with me too, which makes it much mm. harder and easier easier now. They're accepted everywhere. Um, I I do love doing it with with. With On Your Feet, I only did part of it. I did like the first six months and then uh, then I was away for five months and then I came back and did five months. So I did half of it. Um, and I did ca- Cabaret and a little bit of My Fair Lady. Wicked, I did two years. I love mm-hmm. Wicked. Um, and some other one. Oh, and Butterfly. Yeah, no, I love touring. It's And also I think it's important that certain plays get toured. I remember when we did Cabaret in Texas. These guys, the, the doorman, was a young man had seen the show the day before with his wife this was cabaret and he said i love that show and that mc is so terrific and but tell me what does it mean when he comes out in those striped pajamas at the end of the show and i thought that's why we're doing oh. this tour. Oh. it was um yeah it, it's uh and there were, there were some cities too where we had to cut stuff because it wasn't oh. in um I think it was north carolina raleigh they had to cut things that were done behind. There was there were these sex scenes that were done behind a a, a drape so that it, you saw them in, in a right a, menage a trois <laughs> or like yeah, silhouette. Yeah, though. we had to cut yes. it because it had anal sex, so they had to do different things. So they censored law even to portray it on stage. When we did, um, we played near Disney World in Orlando, and the, oh, this was a different show. Um, in *In Butterfly*, the guy wanted the guy supposed to just at one point face up stage um, and and drop trow. He has these silk trousers on. You see his butt. But because there were laws in the city that you can't serve liquor and have any nudity, he couldn't do it. Um, 
oh. because the hookers were complaining. We had we were they paraded in front of the building. The hookers. Oh my god! To be, they said we can't be completely nude and and have the bar, so you can't either. And wow! And so you get the kind of this kind of garbage all the time, but it only makes oh. for more publicity. <laughs> more exactly. people talk. So. Wow. I love that. I love that. So um, let, let me ask you, if I may, you know, if you could look back on on yourself, you know, leaving graduate school, about to embark on your New York journey, what would you, what advice would you give to that person? What do you know now that maybe you wished you had known then? Oh, I think I would be kinder to myself. Um, I was so self critical and there already were people ready to do that for you. Um, mm. I, I think I would give myself the advice that I didn't know how wise it was at the time, but I was given it then. Uh, Colleen Dewhurst was doing um, uh, Move for the Forgotten and she came to speak at, at, at Yale while she was doing the run. And she told us that the big thing we had to remember was no matter how hard it got, that we couldn't let ourselves get too bitter because that would destroy our creativity. If, you, if we didn't have compassion and empathy, you could not be an actor. And so that we had to make sure that they never, they, they never got us that far down. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I think that that has, felt, that has held to be true because there's so many, as in any profession, but so much of what we do, no other profession, for example, gets reviewed for everything they do. No other profession, it has such rejection that's based on, it is based on personality are, and yeah. looks. That's mm-hmm. what it's based on. They can tell you whatever they want, but it's, we want you or we don't want you. And it's right. about your personality and how you look and then the other stuff. And so there's the rejection that you can get so bitter. And then, then there's people in the profession that you get more and more surprised at. They can be real jerks and very petty and competitive on stage. And you don't expect that. I mean, it's like you're grown-ups. What the hell is this? Mm-hmm. And um, and that bitterness can really, but it's the bitter. It's bitter isn't even a good enough word. It's it goes more towards hatred. Mm-hmm. If you get to that ugly place and you can't get out of it, you have to leave the business mm-hmm. because then you'll only be able to play. Well, you could do Succession. <laughs> <You> could do, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's it. Mm, so true. Uh, do those parts. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's what I would still tell myself. Um, and the thing that I never could do, I wouldn't worry about so much. And that's um, to be a real schmoozer in terms of getting work. Mm-hmm. Some people, that's how they work their whole lives. Mm-hmm. They're really good at making those connections. And mm-hmm. um, and I was way too shy, and then would berate myself with that. Mm-hmm. And it's just that's who. If you're not that, if you aren't that way, and you try to do it, it's just painful to watch. Mm-hmm. It's obvious and. Just don't do it if it doesn't feel right. Yeah. But that's wonderful. amazing advice. <laughs> yeah. Alma, um, this has just been an absolute pleasure and an absolute what joy. Fun. I am so happy that we got to spend time with you today. And thank not only you. Me thank too. You. Oh, this was fun. Thank yeah. you. And not only thank you on behalf of us, but thank you on behalf of all of our audience members that have gotten to watch mm-hmm. you on stage and all the joy that you bring to performing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for calling it was lovely to do made my day yay awesome all right till next time everybody everybody thank you for listening to today's episode and a big thanks to the punchy players jeff marquis who is bringing back lucy betty judy and morda shill for us 
And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.